it's good to be in the Lord's house again. Diane and I and the, our family. Is, is, I have my uh, 10-year-old grandson. Hello, Pierce. And uh, Amanda, his mom, and my oldest daughter, Crystal. So we're all here today. The original four plus one. And uh, it's good to have us all together in the Lord's house. This past week, we, we enjoyed, uh, well, not this past week, the week, week, week before, right? We came home a week ago today. We uh, enjoyed some time at uh, Myrtle Beach in, in the mountains in Helen, Georgia, celebrating our uh, 46th wedding anniversary. And yeah, be sure and, and give Diane a sympathy hug and uh, a pat on the back or, you know, whatever. So She has endured, but it's, the Lord is so good. As we look back on all those years together, in ministry together, uh, we are just so appreciative of what God has done uh, in us and through us, and uh, one day we hope to see the results in His kingdom. Because, uh, you know, when you're in ministry, you don't always see immediate results. You don't always see things happening right away. But I've got a feeling that when we get there, the Lord's going to let us know, you know, Hey, did you know that when you said this, this person was listening? Or when you said that, this person was listening? And that allowed His Holy Spirit to work in them and speak to them as well. And sometimes we even have the privilege of allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through us into people's lives. And that's a great, great privilege. And guess what? It's not just reserved for people with credentials. Anybody in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ can do the same thing. And that's some of what we're going to be talking about today as we talk about Paul's mission. Uh, before we do that, the guys were uh, heavily involved in setting the speaker up for me, so I'm hoping it's going to work for us. I'm going to try to sing for you um, another one of those old songs, because old guys sing old songs. So, and uh, It's called uh, Before Your Throne by Dallas Holmes go and, and do the mission for or with. And uh, we have a, a mission dossier for Paul. I kind of just briefly put some bullets together because, I mean, this could be the rest of the time that we have if we're going through all of Paul's dossier. But just in summary, he was born in Tarsus as a Jewish Benjamite Roman citizen. That's complicated right there. He was Jewish. He was a Benjamite. And Benjamites were not that well uh, received, even by other Jews. And he was a Roman citizen, which was really odd. Citizenship, Roman citizenship was not just handed out. His dad or his grandfather or somebody probably did something really helpful to the uh, uh, Roman government. And since Paul's trade was a tent maker, and that should be up there too, um, it's likely that maybe his dad or his grandfather made tents for the Roman army and during a campaign or something that really helped them, and so they awarded them Roman citizenship, which was inherited, passed down from one generation to the next. So that's probably where all that came from. He was trained as a Pharisee at the feet of Gamaliel. We are, we are told his uh, teacher was named, his rabbi was named Gamaliel, and uh, he was trained as a Pharisee. You remember the Pharisees from... The, the Gospels. They were the guys that were for the letter of the law, strict uh, adherence to the law. And uh, they, they were uh, very, very uh, mindful of everybody that kept the law. And that's why the, the Pharisees and Jesus kept clashing, because Jesus would, would uh, poke them on uh, these points of the law that they had made up themselves and added to the law that God had given. And, and he, would, he would say, oh, yeah, look at this. You know, and have his guys not wash their hands or pick crops or, or he would heal on, a, on the Sabbath. and It would just kind of freak them out, which is a good thing. They needed to be. Uh, and in one place, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he was very proud and happy of himself to be having this lineage, that he was a Jewish Roman citizen that he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, that he was a Pharisee, and as part of that, he was involved with the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin is the ruling, governing body of the, of the uh, Jewish people, especially of the Pharisees. 
And uh, as, as probably, Gamaliel was like the, the chief guy on the Sanhedrin. And so as one of Gamaliel's favorite students, he would have been assisting Gamaliel and carrying out the orders. And so we see that he does go out and persecute the Christians. Um, there's some stories that associate him with the death of Stephen, that he may have been there uh, at the time that Stephen was stoned. For sure we know that in Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus to do more of that kind of thing. And uh, on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians that were there, he encountered Jesus. And you can read that story in chapter 9 of Acts. We're not going to take the time to do that. Like I said, to cover the first part of Paul uh, and his mission is a daunting task in the time allowed. So uh, to kind of get through this, I'm going to give you bullets. And please, uh, there's plenty of material online uh, and in our study guides and stuff that will give you all the background stuff if you want to dig deeper on these things. So on, on the way to Damascus, he encounters Jesus. And the, the encounter with Jesus blinded him. The light was so bright that it blinded him. And he was sent uh, to a Christian leader in Damascus for healing. So this proud Jewish Pharisee had to go to one of the very people that he was assigned to persecute and ask for help. And so this was an interesting part of the development. At first, after Paul's conversion in his first parts of his missions, he naturally went to synagogues because that's where he was comfortable. That's where he had contacts and perhaps even had a reputation of being, you know, the Pharisee and so forth. So he used that as an introductory point. But soon the Jews began to realize what he was doing, that he was introducing this Jesus and his teachings into their synagogues. And so they began to persecute him more and more and more. And as they did that, Paul began to look to the Gentiles, and the Lord kind of directed him into the path of being the apostle to the Gentiles. From that, he later saw that he established um, many, many churches in the area. You can look at the list of them that are there. The epistles that he wrote, I mean, he wrote over a dozen books in the New Testament. And those books are all cities that he wrote to. I mean, though, uh, well, not Titus, but... Uh, the rest of them are, are in Philemon, but the, the, the most part, Galatia, uh, Ephesus, Thessalonica, those places, Corinth, those places are all cities that he visited and established churches in. And that's where those books came from. So he was also a trainer of pastors, teachers, and evangelists. So he tried to establish the church and carry out his mission. But he had a mission that was improbable coming from that background of being this Jewish Roman citizen and a Pharisee. For the Apostle Paul, it was a different change of career for him. It was definitely a switch and an adjustment. But God miraculously changed his heart and opened his mind to see the truth of the gospel. And when that truth of the gospel was revealed to him, he could do no less than share and bring it to the people that God put him in the path of. So Paul the Apostle, what does that word apostle mean? It comes from our Greek word apostolos, uh, apologies for the Greek, but you know, it's, it's what's really there behind the English. Um, and that word simply means the messenger. The word apostle simply means the messenger. One who is sent forth, commissioned, and authorized, and charged with, and delegated, to a specific task. And we know what Paul's mission was. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was to preach the gospel. This is part of his mission, to preach the gospel. The, the gospel is this word evangelion, which is where we get our word evangel, evangelistic, evangelism, uh, evangelical. All those words come out of that word. Uh, I know it's spelled with a U, but we translate the U's as V's a lot of times. So that's where that came from. And literally, that means the message. So Paul, the apostle, the messenger, was called to preach the gospel, the message. Does that make sense? Now we can follow and see that that's, that's where it was going. And uh, he was bringing the good news, which is what gospel really means, throughout the Mediterranean. That caused him to train up disciples and leaders for the church. The word church in the New Testament is ecclesia, the called out ones. Called out ones, ecclesia. And that's what the church was. It was the ones who had been called out, called out of Judaism, uh, 
called out of Gentile paganism, called into the light of Christ. Just as Paul had been put into the light of Christ on the road to Damascus, he was now calling others into that marvelous light that he had been exposed to. And then he wrote, as we well know and talked about a little bit already, all the epistles that are there in the New Testament, well, most of the epistles that are in the New Testament. Epistle, the word epistolos, is a message that is sent with a purpose, with the expectation of publication. So these were letters, but they're not uh, private letters to individuals. They are public letters to a church body with the expectation that they would share these letters. Because, you know, back then, no internet, right? No television, radio stations, nothing to, to publicize things with. So the way things got publicized was he would make these letters to these churches and then expect them to copy these letters and make them distributed among the people of God so that everybody would get the message. So that's what it is. The epistles are a message sent with a purpose and the expectation of publication. It's to the church, and then they had a purpose for exhortation, that is to encourage, to urge, and to persuade, and to instruct with doctrine and discipline. So Paul was trying to get everybody on the same page. Is that a mission improbable? <laughs> I mean, we're still trying to do that today, and it ain't working too good, is it? How many denominations do we have? You know, people are not on the same page still. So this was Paul's daunting mission improbable, was to uh, try to do all these things for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But guess what? That mission has now been passed down to us. And CLF also has a mission improbable. We have a mission improbable. And our dossier is contained in Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses. And we're going to go through these and try to get a little better understanding of what these verses are telling us about our mission as believers in the body of Christ in CLF. Paul says, therefore, having been justified. Justified is one of those scary words that we try to skip over and ignore and hope that it means what we think it means. But what it really means is declared righteous. And the easiest way to remember justified is just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified is. Just as if I'd never sinned. By faith is how we are justified in the work of Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is this world in need of peace today? So we have a message that is needed we have a message that is desperately needed in our world, in our country today. There's so much turmoil and division and strife. What better way to bring us together than under the message of peace of the gospel? By the way, I do have uh, copies of these notes available after if you're interested in them, so you're not trying to scribble all this down and miss what I say the next thing. Uh, <laughs> verse 2. Verse 2 says, through whom, this is Jesus Christ he's talking about, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times that I, I really have to make myself conscious and aware that I'm standing in grace. Because my way is not working. My good works don't carry any, you know, any water at all. And uh, so I, I need to come back to this, this verse and remind myself, part of my dossier is I'm standing in grace. It's by grace that I stand. And so we exult, and that's an interesting word because it's used several times in this passage of Scripture. The word exult, exult means rejoice or boast on God. How's that? Anybody like to exult in God, exult and, and praise and boast in God? Not in us. Because nothing we do works, right? Have you, have you experimented with that and figured out that doesn't work? Uh, yeah, when we try to step out in our own strength and our flesh and try to do something, it usually kind of goes, you know. But because of God and his work in us and through us, we can now exult in him, boast in him, praise him. That's what it's talking about. And then the next thing is we exult in hope. Hope is not a wish. 
A lot of people hear the word hope and they think it's, it's a wish. Oh, I hope this happens. I wish this happens. They're, they try to interchange those. The word that's in the scripture is not that word. It's not wish. It's a confidence in something which one knows is going to take place, though it hasn't yet taken place. Confidence in something that we know is going to take place, even though it hasn't taken place. That's what hope is. So our hope is personified in Jesus Christ. And what Pastor Mark was talking about this morning, this conference that is coming up, is going to tell us a little bit about some of the future fulfillment of that hope as we look into how things wrap up. Those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, that are part of His kingdom, that belong to Him, can look at these things that are sometimes very scary for some people. You know, some people read the book of Revelation and they're, and they're terrified. That's not the purpose of it. If you read the whole title, it says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus. So the revelation is about our hope in Jesus. Yeah, all this bad stuff is going to happen, but we have our hope in Jesus. And if you read the end of that book, it says, He wins. He wins. So that's a summary of Revelation. Okay, That's the summary of the end times events. That's about as deep as I care to go. But uh, I know everybody has these curiosities. Oh, what does this thing mean? What does that beast mean? All, you know, And they have timelines and all those wonderful things. But... Um, I won't go there. Um, so that's our hope. It's, an, it's a confidence in Christ. Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exalt in our, exalt that same word, rejoice and boast in God, in our tribulations. There's that very word. Tribulations. Knowing that tribulation, you know what word tribulation means? Under pressure. Not David Bowie, no. Not Bowie, no. Uh, but under pressure, some of you got that reference in other, you know, look it up. Uh, but that word tribulation means under pressure, stress, oppression, affliction. That's what tribulation is. And I know that there's, that's what the, a lot of the book of Revelation is written about, the, the three and a half years and the three and a half years and the seven years of the great tribulation and so forth. Well, Paul talks about it right here in Romans 5. When he talks about this under pressure, stress. You think there's any stress? Are people feeling under pressure today? So is Romans 5, 3 relevant to our lives today? It's not just about the end times, is it? There are tribulations that we go through now. Now there's going to be great tribulation in the end. But even today, some of us have gone through some stress this week. Anybody want to confess to that? Stressed a little bit, okay? Uh, under some pressure, maybe, at work, or the bills that are coming due, or health issues, or, or I don't want to depress you, but uh, anyway, there's, there's tribulations that come, but look what happens. That tribulation, when we are in Christ and have our hope, our confidence in Him, brings about this nice little word, perseverance. Perseverance. So what does perseverance mean? Then we have to go to the next slide. And perseverance, which is patient, consistent endurance. Patience, consistency. Now, this is something I think all of us as human beings struggle with. Being consistent in our patience. <laughs> because some things tend to push our buttons quicker than others. Or at least that's my, been, been my experience. And the enemy seems to know what button to push to test my patience, to put me under pressure, to stress me. But I have his word here in Romans 5 that says part of our dossier as the body of Christ, part of our mission is to show the world what perseverance looks like. To show the world what it looks like to be consistently patient in the midst of stress and pressure. Wow, what a testimony. You see, you don't have to beat them over the head with a Bible. You don't have to argue with them into the kingdom. Show them the goodness of God Amen. by living in patient consistency. So that we, they, they don't see us stressing like they stress. 
And even in grief, we don't grieve as the world grieves because we have a hope in Jesus Christ. Then it says that perseverance brings forth proven character. Interesting phrase, isn't it? That means character that has been tested and approved. Tested and approved. There are levels of things that we move through in the kingdom of God. And as we go through each level, there's a test. Just like in school. You know? The good news is that God keeps letting us take that test until we pass. And he's there to help us. He's there to whisper over our shoulder and give us the answers. And when we finally listen to him and do what he's coaching us to do, we pass the test. And then we're ready to move on to the next level. And what that proven character does is it brings us hope, confidence, so that every level we advance in, every time we pass the test, every time we persevere, every time we wait in patient consistency, our hope, our confidence in Christ increases. So it's not just faith. It's not what some people would refer to as blind faith. It's patient consistency that leads to proven character that God says, yes, this is my child. You're ready for the next level. And as he does that, he'll give you a new challenge for that next level as well. And you keep growing. I was born again on May 5th, 1968. So 50 years ago. Guess what? God's still proving my character. I still go through tests and trials and things that try to push me along and elevate me. I have not arrived yet. And we'll get to that here in a minute when we read from Philippians about Paul and, and his tests and his process. And so hope does not disappoint in verse 5. It's a cause and effect thing. Because of the confidence we have in Christ, we will not be disappointed. It's a cause and effect. Confidence means no disappointment. Confidence cancels out disappointment. You hear that? This is the scripture. Confidence cancels out disappointment. So if you have disappointment in your life, go back to your hope in Christ. And find in that the foundation for that confidence, that hope. This is called, like, I guess, expository preaching, you know, just going through the scriptures. Um, not, getting, not getting real deep, but at least exposing you to a little, one level down in the scriptures. Kind of like an amplified Bible, almost. So the hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. We constantly testify about the love of God, but we need to be reminded of that love too because what happens is in our inconsistency, we project that onto Him. And when we think we are inconsistent, then we say God's probably inconsistent too. And so because I don't love myself when I screw up, I think, well, God probably doesn't love me anymore either. Has anybody ever heard that little voice in their head? Huh. It's not true. God's love is consistent. God's love is unchanging. God's love is unconditional. Even when we mess up. We're going to get here to, to the verse. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you hear the love of God in that? Do you hear the love of God in that? That says that God knows that I was sinning. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, He knew already my life, my sin, my screw-ups, my weaknesses, and He still went to the cross for me and for you. He knew all your failures, all your relapses, all of those things that would happen. And He still loved you enough to go to the cross, and the Scripture says He laid His life down. It wasn't forced upon Him, it was a willing act of obedience to the Father. So now we come to verse 7. 
For one will hardly die for the righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to even die. When we hear about heroes sometimes who give their lives like on the battlefield and stuff, we're always amazed and impressed by that. But think of our hero, Jesus. He was perfect and sinless, the scripture says. And yet, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Get that in your heart. That's God's love. That's God's unconditional love. That's God's profound love. I challenge you to dive into it and allow that love to wash over you. Drown in his love and let it wash away your inconsistency, your hopelessness, your doubts. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, still in rebellion and at war with and enemies of God. That's what that word means. While we were yet sinners, while we were still rebelling against him, at war with him, enemies with him, Jesus said, I'll die for him. I'll give my life in place of theirs. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the scripture tells us. And so the, the blood of innocent lambs had been slain for thousands of years up to this point. And now Jesus steps in as the Messiah, once and for all the Lamb of God, and sacrifices his perfect and sinless blood for those of us who are totally at war with God. That's what rebellion, that's what sin is. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God said, eat all you want except for this one thing. And so what did they do? They focused on the one thing. Do we, do we not do the same kind of thing now? It's, it's like, don't think about elephants, right? And, and immediately that's what our minds go to. And so with Adam and Eve, they immediately focused on this one fruit. Why? You know? And then the enemy came in as a serpent and said, eh, don't, don't worry about that. God didn't really mean that you would surely die. And as we obeyed the enemy rather than God, we put ourselves under his jurisdiction instead of God's love. And we became at war enemies with God. Much more then, in verse 8, having now been justified, declared righteous, just as if I'd never sinned, by his blood... We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Do you, do you realize that being at war with God is kind of a dumb strategy? Hmm? Who do you think is going to win that war? If we're against God, who do you think is going to win that? If he just stops thinking about us for a nanosecond, we're gone. It's by him and through him and in him that we exist. Or at least that's what Scripture tells me. <laughs> Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Do you know what that word reconcile means? There it is, right there. To be made friends with God. Reconciled, made friends with God. That's the context of that. So we go from being his enemies to his friends. Reconciled by the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. Through the death of his son, let's finish it up. Through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled and made friends with God, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also, here's that word again, exalt. Exalt, rejoice, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we now have received the reconciliation, the friendship with God. You know what a privilege it is? To be a friend of God? I think we had a, didn't we have a chorus or a song like that a few years ago? That I am a friend of God? Yeah. It was hard to sing from what I remember, but had a good message. Let's continue on with our mission improbable now. Because of this dossier of what God has done for us through Christ Jesus, we, as a CLF mission improbable, are called to keep on confessing our faults and our sins. 
Because guess what? Probably as long as we got this fleshy stuff on, we're going to keep messing up. This stuff here is, is weak. Paul himself, who, like I said, wrote a lot of those letters that are the biggest part of the New Testament, he said he struggled with that same war. And he said, the, the things that I don't want to do, I seem to wind up doing. And the things that I don't want to do, are, are, don't want to do, I wind up doing. And what I want to do, I can't get done. That's the war between the flesh and the spirit. Have any of us experienced that? We know to do what's right, and yet we can't quite get it done. Something in our flesh calls out to us and drags us back into the old habit of least resistance and says, oh, you can do this one time. It's okay. Lies from the pit. So there's your verses, James 5, 16. I'm not going to take time to read all these. And 1 John 1, 9 and 10. I want you to dig in and look it up. Maybe hear some pages of the Scriptures rustling or phone apparatus, not texting, but at least looking through a new version of the Bible or something. We are also called to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. That's from 1 Peter 3.15. Do you have a reason? Can you give a reason for the confidence you have in Jesus Christ? What is your testimony? What is your testimony? You have to be ready because guess what? There's a world out there that is in darkness and bondage. And when they see light, they are drawn to the light. But they're not drawn to us. They're drawn to the light in us, Jesus. And so we have to be ready to give a reason for what, what's that light there? That light is my hope in Jesus Christ because I know He has forgiven me of my sins and He will do the same thing for you because He doesn't love me any more or less than He loves you. That's our mission. That's another leg in our mission. And the third thing here on this thing is called, we are called to be witnesses. The word witnesses in Greek is martyrs. Martyr, you know, martyr, that's where we get the word martyr from. It says, one who bears witness by his death. You mean we all have to die? Physically? One day we will. But our greatest witness is by the death of our flesh. You hear that? Our greatest witness, our most potent witness, is when we can show a reason for the hope is in us by the change that has taken place in our flesh. By the death of the old nature and the coming alive of Christ in us. And the more we die to flesh and carnal ways, and the more Christ comes alive in us, the greater our testimony, our witness. And so we don't have to die the physical death, although some, some do. There are persecuted Christians all around this world today that are giving their literal lives for the gospel. It hasn't gotten to that point yet in this country. But there's a lot of unpopularity of Christianity nowadays. So it's one who attests to the truth of what he has seen, heard, or knows. Have you seen God's hand in your life? Have you heard the good news of the gospel? Have you heard the word of God that tells you this is the way. Walk in it. Do you know in your heart this is God's truth? I can tell you one place you need to go and that is the Scriptures. Continue on with our mission improbable. We are called to work in the kingdom of God regardless of our previous work history. Did any of you have a work history that probably didn't fit good on your resume when you came to God? Yeah. Some things that you'd probably rather not, not have there. Yeah. But unfortunately, God keeps good records. There's some books up in heaven. You'll learn about that probably in that weekend that we're going to study about. Where things are written down that uh, no one can delete. The only way to cover it is with the blood of Christ. And there's good news in that. 
But some of us have this work history that we would rather not have before God. But He already knows. He already knows. Did you know that we will never, ever surprise God? Never. You can be totally honest with Him about the most drastic, crazy, filthy thing that you've ever done. And you won't surprise Him. Because He was there. He was there. We studied some of these big words in our Wednesday night thing a few weeks ago. The omniscience of God, that means He knows everything. The omnipresence of God, that means He's everywhere. (laughs) So there's no hidden secrets from God. The closet doesn't work. Sweeping it under the rug doesn't work. Putting on your mask of piety doesn't work. You have to be honest with Him. So that leads us to this. Are you uncertain then about this work that you're called to in the kingdom of God? Well, God's Word will teach you at 2 Timothy 3.16. Do you feel unworthy? All of us should feel unworthy. I mean, none of us are worthy, right? For God to call us into His kingdom and allow us to participate in the work of the kingdom. And yet God's Word says He'll train you in His righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. You see a verse coming? Um, Thirdly, If you feel unable, that you just can't. Lord, I can't. See, he's heard these excuses a few times, and so his word prepared the answer to them. God's word says, he will mature and grow you to do whatever it is he calls you to do. And that's, guess what? 2 Timothy 3, 17. Are you unprepared? Are you trying to use that excuse? Lord, I don't, I'm unprepared. I don't know how work in your kingdom. God's word says he'll equip you to do what he assigned you to do. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17. So now let's look a little bit deeper into that. We're going to go through this verse, two verses, and kind of do the same thing in in an expository manner, expose the words that are there so that we can understand the, the full truth of what's behind them. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 reads like this, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Verse 17, So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When he says, when Paul writes Scripture, what is he referring to? This thing called the Tanakh. It's the, what we refer to as the Old Testament. It's the book of Torah, which is the, the Pentateuch, the five first books of, the, of our Bible. The books of the prophets. And then another thing called the writings, which is like Psalms and Proverbs and those kind of things. So those three sections comprise the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament for us. And so when Paul is referring to Scripture, that's what he's referring to because he was still writing this. They didn't have the Gospels yet. They didn't have Paul's letters canonized yet in a book. They couldn't run down to the local Christian bookstore, Lifeway, and say, hey, I need this New Testament thing that's just come out. No, it hadn't come out yet. And So that's what he's referring to. But as he is writing this, God is inspiring him to write it to be part of that Scripture. And so we see that Paul tells us that the Scripture, all Scripture, is God-breathed. It came from him. He inspired it. Man didn't write this by himself. Paul didn't wake up one day and say, well, I think I'll write a letter. No. The Spirit of God compelled him to write these letters. And what he wrote down was inspired by the Holy Spirit, specifically for that church that he was writing to, But the inspiration was so deep and so strong and beyond even Paul's understanding that today we still look at these scriptures, these letters. We still look into them for teaching, for doctrine. So what is this teaching and doctrine? It's telling the truth or doctrine in a nurturing fashion. Nurturing is feeding, right? Some of us as Americans, we're used to drive-through feeding. 
We want to drive through the fast food restaurant on Sunday morning and get served our food and then go about our merry way. And that's it for the week. Now, if you try to do that to your body, let me tell you, it ain't going to work. Try to feed your body on one fast food meal a week and see what happens. And yet that's what we do to our spirit. Paul says this word is for teaching, for nurturing us, for feeding us. So we have to make a habit of reading the scripture. Think about how many hours you, you spend reading Facebook or some other social media, how many hours you spend in front of a television being entertained, and how many hours compared to that do you feed your soul from the word of God? I'll, I'll go on. Let the spirit handle that one. The second thing he talks about is reproof. Reproof is defending the faith from error or false doctrines. The ability to rebuke false teachers and doctrine. But guess what? You have to know what truth is before you can rebuke it. <laughs> you have to be able to recognize false doctrine before you can counter it or reprove it. And if we don't know what the Word says, then how are we going to recognize falsehoods when they come to us. And tell, let me tell you this, folks, there's a lot of people out there that are teaching shades of truth. Shades of truth. That will scratch your ears and make you feel good, but not give you the whole story. You mean, you say, you, you mean I, I'm missing out on something? Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. How do you remedy that? Oh, look at verse one, the first thing. Read the scriptures. Because that's what they're there for, to nurture you, to teach you, to feed you truth. So these are all connected. The next one is correction. Correction is a restoration to a better state from a fault or condition that needs to be straightened up. And immediately when we think about this, we think about straightening other people up. Right? Well, that church over there doesn't, do, you know, I got to correct them, I got to fix them. No. Jesus talked about this beam and this speck. He said, before you go taking a two by four out of somebody else's eye, check the speck of dirt that's in your own. And that's the way we should be. It's for correction of us. And as the individual us's get corrected, we can come together in truth and harmony, which is what God intended. So you can't, you can't really go around saying, well, I know the truth and I'm going to correct you. No, that, that's not going to, it's not how the gospel is shared. <laughs> the next one is training in righteousness. That's instruction in proper and upright and ethically acceptable behavior. Think our society needs any of that today? Our society is so crude and rude. <laughs> From just when I grew up, I know it was a long time ago, but those, those times, people didn't use the kind of language that they do today in public. I mean, I was, I'm a southern boy. I was brought, you don't say those kinds of things in front of your mama or any other lady. And now we got people that call themselves ladies using that kind of language, and publishing it on Facebook sometimes. Oh, it's gotten quiet. <clears throat> Education provides cultivation of mind and morals. Education provides cultivation of mind and morals. The only way this is going to be fixed, repaired, corrected, reproved, is when we begin to allow the truth to enter into our own hearts and minds, change our behavior so that we have people modeling the hope that is in Christ. That's the preaching. That's the sharing of the gospel. That's the witnessing. That's the mission that we are called to. Then Paul uses this little word, adequate. Perfect is really what it's talked about. Perfect in the sense that it is balanced, harmonious, complete. 
God wants us to be balanced believers. And yet some, I won't name names, but some seem to have a particular thing that they get on, a hobby horse that they ride, and they ride it into the ground because it says what they want it to say. And they've twisted it and honed it and sanded it down and polished it to make it say what they want it to say. But Paul says the Word of God is supposed to make us balanced, perfect, complete, mature. Are those words scary to you? Well, grow up. That's part of being in the body of Christ. We can't present immaturity to our world and expect the world to be impressed. We must come with the maturity of the Spirit of God in us. And the only way that happens is when we are rooted and grounded and grown from the truth of the Word of God. We'll move on. My big red clock back there is ticking. The next thing that Paul says there in verse 17 is this word equipped. Equipped. Some translations call it thoroughly furnished. When I delved into the meaning behind that phrase, I found out that it is actually a nautical term. It's to completely deck out or to fully supply. And it was originally applied to ships. It was used to depict a ship that had been previously ill-equipped for traveling, but the owner, the new owner, had decked it out with new equipment and gear so that the ship had become thoroughly furnished to sail anywhere in the world. That's a picture of what God wants to do for us. Before we come to Him, we're a shipwreck. Our boat is sinking but when he rescues us and he becomes the owner, he thoroughly furnishes. He redoes the whole boat from stem to stern. And he equips us with whatever we need for the journey he sends us on. So there's no need to fear this mission improbable. It's a mission improbable because when you look at us on the exterior and you look at our past history, our work history, you'd say, oh, never. That would never happen. And yet God sees in us the potential of a thoroughly furnished vessel in His kingdom. The mission. So this verse then can read that the man of God may be perfect, completely outfitted and fully supplied, decked out, furnished, and equipped unto all good works. God doesn't send us on a voyage that He hasn't equipped us for. God doesn't send us out in a leaky boat. Now, sometimes we're guilty of punching holes in our own boat, you know. Or throwing some of the equipment over the side. Oh, I don't need that. And then we get stuck in that point where we did need that, and we say, oh, uh, God, can you, can you fix this? So now we come to our mission statement. We started out with this lesson from Paul. But now let us read this together as we read this challenge from God. It's not from God, I wrote it, but, you know, I use scriptures. Good morning, CLF. Your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to represent him well. Have you heard those words before? Um, to be a living gospel wherever you go and walk it out. I've heard those words before here. To be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you. We talked about that, the confidence. To reflect the love of Christ and his life-changing power to a world darkened by hatred and hopelessness. You can expect strong opposition to your mission. You'll be misunderstood, shunned, rejected, and ridiculed, among many other hardships and sufferings. When you do, remember what he said. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13.5. As promised, should you fight the good fight and finish your course and keep the faith, you will have a crown of righteousness awarded to you by the Lord, the righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4.7. And should you persevere, overcome, and walk in the victory that Christ died to bring you, 
thus fulfilling the mission by his grace, the Savior will welcome you into his kingdom with open arms and with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So we conclude with this verse that I think ties it all together. This is Paul writing this about himself, and if this is Paul's description of himself, then how much more should it apply to us? Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained. I told you, 50 years haven't obtained. No. Still looking. Still searching. Still growing. Or have already become perfect, mature, grown, ready, balanced. I still find imbalance in my life. And when I don't, the enemy throws something on the scale that throws it out of balance. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He's talking about Damascus Road. Have you had a Damascus Road experience? Has Jesus laid hold of your life? Has he shined his light into your life? Has he found you kicking against the pricks, as the scripture says there in that passage? Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, and then he lists three things. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's our mission. As improbable as it may seem when we look at our own lives, it's what God is calling us to and has promised us to be equipped to do. I leave you with that challenge this morning. These altars will be open. If you have not had a Damascus Road experience, if you have not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we invite you to come down here and we will gladly pray with you. There are plenty of people here that would love to see you come to Jesus. Lay your stuff down before him and come to him and find rest. If you're here today and some of these struggles that we've talked about are in your life, Jesus is here to equip you, to remove the burdens and to equip you with what you need to fulfill the mission that God has called us to. And I think CLF has that mission today. And God is equipping us as a body of Christ to fulfill his mission in this community.